some positive things too. Yes. Um, and um, so I can imagine that uh, that you were feeling uh, proud, hopeful, and encouraged. Did you feel any of those? Yes, I think I felt all of those. Okay, and just great. Very happy. Okay, great. Well, awesome. thank you for sharing with me. That You're welcome. Warmed my heart. Thank you. You're welcome. She's awesome. Okay, uh, so before we move on, uh, we had a delightful conversation with the Somaripas. Somaripas? I said it correctly? Okay, awesome. Because uh, a few things I want to clarify. First of all, when Cece and I did our example before the break, we did add the fourth step that we haven't explained yet, so we're going to get to that. Uh, the other thing is, when you are making a dialogue or discussing an issue, you also must address things in a very specific way or a specific incident. In other words, if you come to your partner and say, oh, I want to make a dialogue about a pattern of your life for the past 15 years, there is no way a person will be able to endure that because you're, this is what we call flooding. You are flooding that person. When you say, you know what, you are always like, I want to talk about how you're always late for appointments. Wow. You know, good luck with that one, man. Because my brain is, my amygdala mode is going to be automatically defensive. And my brain's going to search for the two examples in the last 10 years that I wasn't late. So you're a liar. Anyway. So it's, it doesn't make any sense. So when you make an appointment, you need to address a very specific incident. Because guess what? Even if, let's say I am late all the time. If Cece can do a dialogue with me to talk about me being late last Tuesday, and if I can process with her being late on Tuesday, I'm going to learn so much from that. That will change the pattern. Because I can repent when I'm safe. If I'm defensive, I'm going to go to worldly sorrow, and I'm going to guard myself, protect myself, and I'm not going to be able to change the way that I think. Does that make sense? Okay. And the third thing, man, I learned a lot talking with you guys during the break. The third thing is, uh, and I think Cece reminded us of this, guys, this tool, you can integrate everywhere. You can integrate it with your parenting. This is something we've done with our kids for the last several years. Man, when there are issues where I know I'm hot and I know I'm mad... I make an appointment so that I can force me to communicate about this in a way that is safe for my kid to listen. Okay? And, and vice versa. If my kid does something, I'm like, hey guys, can you send it in this way so that I make sure I completely get what's on your mind or what's bothering you? Okay? Uh, and also ministry, my gosh, conflicts in the ministry, conflicts with people in your Bible talk. This is a great way to approach it and get people, everyone ready and level to address things. Okay. All right, moving on. Growing by your side. This is our final session. This one's a very short one. Uh, this is very, especially for our culture, I think there's a lot of confusion because our culture is all about happy. Yeah. This is one reason why I moved to Russia. It's because I just didn't buy it anymore. I don't believe that we're all happy all the time. <laughs> 
so I loved it going to a country where everybody was pretty sad, depressed. I'm like, these people are real. I love this, man. This is awesome. Because it's true. I mean, what do you want? I, I, I'd rather have I'd rather have somebody genuinely sad than fake happy. Who do you want to spend time with? Anyway, so happiness versus joy. So James one, again, if we can apply this to marriage, consider it pure joy, husband and wife, whenever you're facing conflicts of many kinds. Because now you have a tool that you can use to work through that trial or work through that conflict. Okay, and let's clarify again. What is the Bible talking about when it comes to joy? Here's a great definition. Happiness requires a positive perspective on one's circumstances. Joy does not. Okay, joy is not about the spin. Joy, you know, even our even our Lord, he for the joy set before him, he endured the worst circumstances that a human being could face. But I do believe Jesus had joy in that moment. I don't think Jesus was happy on the cross. I think there was joy, though, in that this is horrible what's happening to me, but I have a peace that transcends the circumstances that I'm in right now. And by the way, this is how the enemy gets all of us. The enemy wants you to get attached to circumstances in your life or circumstances in your marriage and wants wants you to be convinced that your joy is trapped according to the circumstances. Which is not true. You know, so anyway, I think this is something to keep in mind that in our marriages, especially when we got married, we were who was happy when they got married. Brothers, raise your hands right now for going out. Gee whiz, you, you are just sinking right now. But anyway, but typically, you're extremely happy, and man, all the circumstances are great. And later today, we're gonna have sex for the first time. This is amazing. So we're so happy. <laughs> Honestly, we probably don't even understand joy in that moment. But joy is what you understand when you're actually building real love. And we're going through things together and we're developing together and God is leading us together. We're getting through difficulties together and trials of many kinds. That's joy. Okay, And this is why most marriages end is because people realize, hey, I'm not happy anymore. Well, dude, that wasn't the purpose of marriage. For you to be happy all the time. Okay, I digress. All right, I love this phrase, and this is something to to take in carefully. There is no growth without change, no change without fear or loss, and no loss without pain. And I love this because I think this ties into why I believe God created marriage is because as I go in my marriage and I'm working through conflicts that are connected to my background and my past, I'm able to lose some of those things that entangled me from ways that I learned to think as a kid or learned ways to survive as a kid. And I'm realizing I can let go of some of those things. 
I can remember one of you know when I get really really frustrated and really mad. I know. I, I remember one time I was so mad at Cece, and I was so quiet, like I could almost feel my father's face on my face. Because first, that's what I observed a lot. When my dad was mad, he was quiet, and he was a mystery. Like, what's going to happen next? And I could see myself becoming that. It was crazy. But God's like, David, I want to help you lose that. I don't want you to have to handle things the way that you were taught growing up. I want to teach you the best ways so that you stay connected with your wife and not mad and shut down and disconnected. Okay? So, uh, Cece and I jumped ahead in our example and we were, uh, we went through all four steps or parts. The fourth one is called moving forward. Moving forward. And part four is about this. Uh, moving forward from conflict. I love that. Moves us into restoration. So that's the goal of our conflicts. It's getting the relationship back into a state of restoration. And so uh, you guys remember, so I empathize with Cece. I throw out three emotion words that she maybe felt in that conflict or whatnot. But then the fourth step is this. I'm going to I'm going to try to guess a particular emotion that the other person feels about our relationship right now. And I think the guess what I guess with you is, oh, disconnected. I said, I, I imagine this makes you feel disconnected in our relationship. And she said, yes. And I forgot to say, I'm sorry for making you feel disconnected about our relationship or in our relationship. Please forgive me. Again, forgiveness is a very safe state of the mind. When you're able to ask for forgiveness, your brain is safe, man. You are helping yourself by asking forgiveness. And then this final part is, I think, one of the most key. What is something I can do to help you not feel blank about our relationship? Okay? Now... Um, the mistake that most Christians make is Christians believe in nice. Christians love nice words. Okay? Um, and so we can kind of think we're doing it a Christian way by saying, well, I would just like you to be more thoughtful in our relationship. And of course, both people are like, well, yeah, thoughtful would be good. I'd, I'd like thoughtful. What the heck does thoughtful mean? Nobody knows, right? Or I've got an idea about thoughtful. Cece's got a whole different idea about thoughtful. But I have no idea how to move forward and actually win, right? So, in other words, repentance is a mind thing. But then the fruit of repentance is then what we see outside, right? And it's the same thing. Don't ask to be thoughtful. Try to mention a very specific action that would then help the person feel uh, connected. Does that make sense? Whatever the word was that it made you feel about the relationship, I want a specific thing that I can do so that within 24 hours or maybe the next couple of days, I know exactly how to win with you. And you are going to know. You are going to see the fruit of my repentance. By seeing something very specific that I'm going to do. Does that make sense? Now, 
For complicated issues, I would say uh, it is sometimes helpful not to just make one specific behavior request, but actually two or three. In other words, options. In other words, get creative in terms of two or three ways that the person could win on that particular issue. The reason why that is is because most people, especially men, we love to have options. Right, we love options. And when a person feels like they have options, they feel a little bit more empowered, a little safer, and they can choose, okay, which one of these paths could I commit to that would help you feel more connected in our relationship? Okay? Or whatever the quality is that I'm trying to correct based on that conflict. Okay. Um, this is a very short verse, but my goodness, it is packed with what healthy marriage environment is composed of. Rejoice always. Now, I think that's about joy. It's not about happy. Uh, rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in good circumstances. Just testing you people. It's, it's, we're getting late. We're over. I get it. Okay. So give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will. For you in Christ Jesus. Man, that is a broad statement. Wow, that's that's God's will for me. Interesting. Okay, so a resilient relationship is a praying relationship. Remember what I said earlier, the prefrontal cortex? When you engage in prayer with your spouse, you are helping your brain and your spouse's brain by being before God in your relationship. And this is something that Cece and I, I remember in the past, I always kind of looked at that as just a rule. Pray with your spouse. It's good to pray with your spouse. But I think because it just sounded like a rule, I didn't really get or accept the heart of it. It is really good for David as son of God to communicate with my dad, with his daughter. I mean, that is the, the essence of our marriages, right? That we are brother and sister and husband and wife. Okay? Um, a resilient relationship is a thankful relationship. And I mean, there have been so many studies on this, it's ridiculous. But when the brain engages in just that process of being thankful, it loads your brain up with the best chemistry, it loads your brain up with the best balance, because it engages both prefrontal cortex and limbic system because prefrontal cortex has to look and find and discern what is something going on in my life and how am I thankful for that and then once I identify that my limbic system starts releasing dopamine that's oh yeah that is good that's wonderful okay uh, this is a very helpful thing and this ties in why I really believe in that 90-10 rule in terms of why in our marriages our spouse triggers so many things from the past. It's because the brain has this horrible phenomenon called the negativity bias, which basically means our brains take in negative experiences. Uh, it has stress and react is kind of we, we respond to those negative experiences. Then the information goes further and locks into our memory, locks into the bed of our limbic system, right? Registers that. And then we're not done. Now the brain takes that information and now searches 
for the next time that negative experience is going to happen. Now, this sounds like almost a cruel trick on God's part. Like, God, why would you make negative experiences get so thoroughly entrenched in our brains? Well, it's tied into survival. Okay? Thousands of years ago, we were dealing with saber-toothed tigers, you know, on the other side of the hill. I mean, we had all these threats. And so, for our safety, I think this negativity bias was designed to save us, to help us. Because, man, if I just take lightly that saber-toothed tiger over there, that means I'm going to be showing up here again tomorrow, and I'm going to be lunch. Right? So, the brain needed to register threats so that it could document, be ready, and prepared to survive certain things that were threatening. However, negativity bias is horrible for marriage. It's horrible for parenting. It's horrible and actually not appropriate in church. In church, we are not supposed to have negativity bias toward one another. Oh, I know what that brother does. Oh, there he goes again. Got it. Let's just wait till next week. He's probably going to. I mean, that's wrong. Okay? There's a lot of scripture to help you overcome negativity bias. And on the other side, now this is the sad thing. Look at this. Positive experiences, they just waltz right through your brain. Just walk right through. In, out. It's crazy. That's why, like the exercise, you notice what Cece and I just did in, in the break. I know most of you didn't do it, but when you do that exercise and the positive experiences, right, you dialogue it, what are you doing? You are accessing more of your mind around a positive experience with your spouse. So all the hundreds of things that your spouse does well, instead of just going by the wayside, you can actually register it. It can be a deposit in the relationship. But guys, guess what? Our brains aren't wired to find what is good in our spouses. Our sinful minds are wired to find what's wrong, minimize and forget and not even recall all the good. That's why this is so important to be intentional. That's why the scriptures, I think, say, give thanks. Just develop that skill, that spiritual skill set of giving thanks. Oh, I love this. Wink. So scientifically, they say that it takes about three positive deposits to balance out a negative experience or a conflict with somebody. All right? Which ties into my next and final point. Appreciation ritual. I love this. And your brains are going to love this. So basically, uh, typically, Cece and I do this at the end of the day, but it's typically, it's just acknowledging three appreciations for something the other person did during that day. Now, guess what? Is this easy? No. Because guess what? Your brain's been in negativity bias mode all day long, and now you're forcing yourself to break out of negativity bias, and now I have to search. My prefrontal cortex has to turn on and go, okay, hold on. What were three things that she did that were helpful, good, encouraging? Philippians 4.8. 
what was admirable, right, pure, lovely, excellent, praiseworthy, all that stuff. Philippians 4a, baby, that's a big one. Apply it to your spouse. Okay? And just articulating those to each other, I'm telling you, it is it will rewire your marriage brain by making these deposits on a regular basis. Okay, here we go. Change of marriage. I think we have some ideas today, I hope, in how to change our marriage, how to enrich it, how to have great conflicts in it, how to develop through those. And as a result, parents, you're going to be able to change your family. But you start with the marriage. Uh, change your family. You're going to be able to change your neighborhood, maybe your small group. I'm telling you, man, there's no better authority than to go into church or go into your small group or hanging out with people and having a healthy, functioning marriage. And that will impact a lot of people around you. So change the neighborhood, change the community, change the city, change a nation, and change the world. That is what we will do when we use this amazing tool that God has blessed us with, which is one another. I love you guys. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Uh, I wanted to plug something. Can I do a shameless plug? Here we go. Um, this is a the book that uh, I told you earlier that Cece and I were going in this loop where we were meeting with the same couples every three months. And so what we finally did was we listed all the difficult married situations in our ministry. We BCC'd them on an email and invited them all to go through a class together with us. And basically, uh, uh, Harville Hendricks, he's the man that actually invented this whole imago therapy thing. But this book, although it's secular, it talks about all, many of the principles that I talked about today and some more, as well as some very practical skills. It's basically a 10 chapter book. But we now have we did a class with about 10 couples. And now we've had marriages not only transform within that couple, within that group, but now we've had two or three couples in those groups now start their own groups. I mean, it's like a good virus. <laughs> People are realizing, wow, our marriage makes sense. We've got tools to make it work. And uh, this book has just been phenomenal to do in a small group setting. And what we're trying to do is do it where uh, our neighborhoods are going to start hosting these things. Because most couples in your neighborhood would probably love to learn some very evidence-based skills to improve their marriage. Uh, and if you email me, I can send you a workbook uh, that integrates some scriptural principles tied to each of the chapters. Okay? So that's my shameless plug. Yeah.